How would you feel if you suddenly found out that you weren't who you thought you were? That your family had secrets, and those secrets were about you? Would you wonder if you could trust anybody at all anymore? Even God? Hey everybody, welcome back to The Unlovely Truth. I'm your host, private investigator Lori Morrison, and I'm going to bring you another story from the world of true crime, and then we're going to see where it intersects with our faith. I hope you'll join forces with me to answer what I think is every Christian's calling, and that's to be a different kind of PI, a person of impact. And we'll talk about a practical way to do that after we dive into today's case. But I do have to give you a little bit of a warning this time. This is not graphic material, but it is slightly disturbing, especially for those of us that are moms. And so just keep in mind that we're going to talk about a mother who killed her own child. So if you can still hang in there with us, I really hope you will, because there are some really great lessons to be learned from this story. This is Season 3, Episode 38. And the book that we're going to use to talk about this case is Murder, Motherhood, and Miraculous Grace by Deborah Mork. Deb and Al Mork were veteran foster parents. They had taken care of over a hundred kids over the last couple of decades. And they were currently fostering a couple of little brothers when they got a call to ask if they could take a four-day-old girl. That baby and her mom had tested positive for cocaine at the baby's birth. And so she needed an emergency placement. Deb described it as being an easy yes. She and Al already had five of their own kids and three of them still lived at home. So this baby was going to get lots and lots of love and attention. The poor thing would shake and cry inconsolably due to the drugs affecting her tiny system. And when Deb and one of her daughters arrived at the hospital to pick her up, the nurse told them that the biological mother wanted to meet Deb. She told her that she had named the baby Allie and that her name was Karen. It was a bit of an awkward meeting, But it was soon over, and then Deb and her daughter were bundling up little Allie and taking her home. It had been hard for the Morks over the years to really come to where they could forgive the parents of all of these children that they had fostered after they saw the abuse and neglect that these kids had suffered. I can only imagine. I've never fostered, but I think that would be terribly difficult to be able to say, here's a child that I'm now bonded with and I care for. And you, their parent, is someone who has caused this child that I love to hurt. So just just try to picture that for yourself. But after they gave their lives to Christ and they learned the power of forgiveness in their own lives, they knew that they had to forgive these parents. But they couldn't imagine how hard it would be with Allie and Karen. Deb and Al had only been taking care of little Allie for a day or two when the social worker assigned to the girl called and said that Allie had siblings that needed cared for. Four of them, ages six, five, four, and three. The Morks had enough room since the two boys that they had been fostering had been reunited with their mother. So Deb thought that this was just going to be another easy yes. These siblings had been scattered among various relatives and they were so excited to be back together. This seems to me like such a huge undertaking. But Deb and Al had specialized training that they had taken to work with difficult placements. 
and they really had a heart for keeping siblings together whenever they possibly could. Christmas was coming, and decorating was a very chaotic but joyful time for them. It gave them a great opportunity to teach these new kids in their home exactly why we as Christians celebrate Christmas. And eventually, as it does for most foster kids, the time came for these siblings to have an unsupervised visit with their mom. Karen did seem to be making a sincere effort to pull her life together and do what authorities told her she had to do so that she could take care of all of her kids. But at a court hearing, her own parents did not seem convinced. They were raising yet another of Karen's children, her oldest. The court decided to grant Karen more liberal visitation rights. But two of the little kiddos were very anxious whenever it came time to visit their mother. After they returned back to Debenow's house from an overnight visit, one of the little girls had a bruised forehead and a black eye. Karen and the girl both said that she had slipped getting out of the tub. Soon it was time for another overnight visit. As they were leaving, Deb told the little girl with the black eye, her name was Hannah, that she loved her and Jesus loved her even more. And then the children left with Karen. The visits continued and Hannah continued to be reluctant to go with her mother. Against court orders, Karen continued to see the father of two of her children. He had a lengthy criminal history and wasn't very fond of Karen's children by other men, which is why the courts had said that Karen needed to stay away from him if she wanted to regain custody of all of her kids. One day when Deb was out shopping, she ran into a friend of Karen's. She spoke with her and asked her how she thinks the kids are doing. And Karen's friend tells Deb she is worried about the man that Karen is seeing. He does not treat the children well. He was especially abusive to one of the boys and to Hannah. And this is where it starts getting a little disturbing. He would often duct tape their mouths and hands and put them in a closet when they annoyed him. I know that none of you can even imagine doing something like that. Pushing her anger down, Deb thanked the young woman and immediately reported what she'd heard to the kid's caseworker. And then she took on the difficult task of asking Karen about what she had heard. And Karen did seem ashamed, and she admitted that it was true. Deb wondered to herself what else the children had to endure. What other secrets was this family keeping? Before long, it was time to start planning for the children to be reunited with Karen. The children's caseworkers and Deb had carefully laid out a six-month plan that they had to take to the court and get approved by a judge. And these were usually just kind of rubber stamp. But for some reason, the judge in this case decided to return the children to Karen immediately, that day. Karen did seem eager to have her children with her, except for Hannah. And as Deborah helped the kids pack up their belongings and they drove them to Karen's home, once again, Hannah begged not to be made to go. Wouldn't that just break your heart? And even as level-headed and responsible as Deb was, she said in the book that she briefly thought about whether she should take Hannah out of state or even out of the country to avoid giving her back to her mother. But she knew she couldn't do that because the consequences would be awful on her own family. As hard as it was going to be, Hannah was going to have to go with her siblings back to live with their mom. When they reached Karen's house and she came out to greet them, it was immediately obvious that she was expecting another baby. She admitted that she was surprised and a little overwhelmed 
that she was going to be getting all of the children back so soon. Seeing Hannah sitting stiffly and uncomfortable on the couch, Karen asked her what was wrong. Deb quickly covered by saying that she was just tired, and she helped bring in the rest of the boxes from the car, told the children goodbye, and then sobbed all the way home. All she could do now for the kids was pray. Weeks passed, and Deb continued to wonder just how all of these kids that she had really come to love were doing. She was able to visit a couple of times, but the children were quiet and distant. At the end of September, Karen gave birth to her baby, a little boy. And Deb asked Karen if she could bring gifts for the new little one. It would be a great excuse to see all the other kids. Karen told her she wouldn't be home, but Deb could leave the gifts at the front door. So Deborah and one of her daughters arrived at Karen's house. It was raining so hard, she was looking for a dry place to put the gifts. She noticed the door to a detached garage was open, so she stepped inside to stow away the presents. The putrid stench of rotting meat made them retreat to their car just as fast as they possibly could. Later, Deb called Karen to let her know where she'd put the presents, and she asked about that awful smell. Karen said, oh yeah, a lot of food had spoiled, and she'd had to throw it out, and it was in the garage. You and I have listened to enough true crime podcasts, we've watched it on TV, we've read the books. We know that that wasn't spoiled food. Deb decided she needed to make a surprise visit this time to check on the kids. One of the young boys mentioned that his brother was at a friend's and that Hannah had misbehaved and been sent away to live with someone else. Karen just glared at him. Deb contacted the Division of Family Services and told them once again that she was so, so worried about Hannah in particular and the rest of these children. And they told her once again that they were checking on the family and that everything was just fine. Deb decided that it was time that she just had to move on and let God take care of Karen and the children. You and I all know that when we decide to let go of something, it's hard to do that 100%. She never could get the children out of her mind, especially Hannah. One day, months after they had left Deborah and Al's house, the phone rang while Deb was doing some cleaning. It was a caseworker from DFS who knew that Deb and Al had cared for Hannah and her siblings. She was calling to tell Deb that Karen had been sent to prison, and the Division of Family Services was having a little bit of trouble locating all of the children. Once again, Deb poured out her concerns and how she'd shared them with so many caseworkers, and she felt like nobody had ever really taken her seriously. But this caseworker did, and she filed a missing persons report for Hannah and her brother Andrew. Deb was relieved that some action was being taken. Four days later, when the phone rang again, and it was the DFS caseworker again, the news was not good. She told Deb that Hannah had been found. Deb asked where she was. The caseworker was silent for a moment, and she told Deb that Hannah's body had been found in the garage where the family had been living. The little girl had been dead for some time. I want to take just a moment and remind y'all of why we tell these stories. This one especially is so difficult, but sometimes we can live in a little bubble and not realize what's going on in the world around us, how many people are hurting, how many people need help, and the small things we can do to help them. So I share these true crime stories so that we can start a conversation, we can learn some things, and we can even draw some spiritual lessons 
from these stories as well. I don't enjoy any more than you do the gut-wrenching sadness that some of these, really nearly all of these, have at their core. Parents used to tell their kids fairy tales to teach their kids how to stay safe. Little Red Riding Hood, don't walk in the woods alone and don't talk to wolves. These are kind of grown-up fairy tales, and I want us to learn those lessons to keep ourselves, our families, and our communities just a little bit safer. After learning what had happened to Hannah, it's not surprising at all to know that Deb and her family had some really, really tough issues that they had to wrestle with and work through. One being, why did God allow Karen to regain custody of Hannah if this was how it was all going to turn out? Why hadn't Deb's concerns for Hannah's safety been taken seriously enough by the authorities to prevent this tragedy? The very next day, the phone rang again. This time, though, it was a collect call. That's the only way prisoners can make phone calls. You're right, it was Karen calling. Deb was ready to hang up with her when she felt the Holy Spirit telling her that she needed to talk to Karen. Deb was shocked to hear Karen asking for her to come visit her in jail. How would you feel? That was the last thing that Deb wanted to do. I imagine that if she'd had the chance, she would have wanted to take out her anger over Hannah's death out on Karen, verbally if not physically. But the rage passed, and all she could really say in that moment was maybe, and she hung up the phone. The thought of visiting the woman who had killed Hannah, a girl who had been so precious to Deb, was revolting. But she also knew that she was feeling a gentle nudging from the Holy Spirit that she should go. So she did. If you've never been to visit anybody in jail, let me share my experience with you. I helped lead a Bible study in a secure workhouse for low-level offenders. And even there, you've got to be buzzed into the building, searched by the guards with a wand, you have to pass through numerous locked doors, and you're escorted by another guard to actually reach the people that you've come to see. So once she got to the jail, Deb had a whole lot of time to continue to think and even change her mind about going to see Karen. She had been in jails before to visit people as a chaplain. And so she wondered, was she there as a chaplain or was she there as the foster mother of a murdered child? Once Deb was seated, a guard brought Karen to the visitation area. She seemed surprised that Deb had actually come. She asked if Deb knew where her children were, a surprising question from someone who had shown them such little amount of care in their short lives. Karen asked Deb if she knew all about what had happened. Deb told her she only knew a little, and Karen began to fill in and give her a little bit more details. She began her story by saying that Hannah was fussing at her, refusing to go downstairs even after Karen had told her to. Karen admitted pushing Hannah toward the stairs. She wouldn't exactly admit that she had pushed her down the stairs. Naturally, Hannah was crying and wailing when she landed at the bottom of the stairs, and instead of provoking a motherly instinct of sympathy and wanting to help, it only made Karen angrier. She told Deb that when Hannah wouldn't stop crying, she began to kick her. Amazingly, Deb describes in the book that Karen didn't shed any tears when she was describing how finally Hannah stopped crying and began to just moan softly. 
She knew that her daughter was critically injured, but she refused to call for help. She waited until Hannah was dead, put her body in a trash bag, and then tossed the bag out in the garage. It is absolutely horrifying to me to know that we live in a world where people can make such evil choices. Finally, it came time for Deb to go, and Karen asked her if she would visit her again. Have you ever felt called to do something that really you had absolutely no desire to do? Well, that's how Deb felt, and her family couldn't understand why she would even consider it. In her heart of hearts, Deb wasn't real sure why she was considering it either. She just knew that this is what God wanted her to do. Right as she was leaving that visit, Karen dropped another bombshell. She was pregnant again. At Hannah's funeral, Karen's brother approached Deb and Al to thank them for what they'd done for Karen's children, especially Hannah. Deb could only make it through the terrible ordeal of the funeral by asking God to replace her visions of Hannah enduring her last moments with new visions of Jesus embracing her. The next day, Deb kept a promise to Karen by visiting again and sharing with her the details of Hannah's funeral. Then Karen asked a question that Deb wasn't quite ready to answer. She wanted to know if forgiveness for what she had done was possible. I think that our natural human response is immediately to thinking that no matter what we've done, it's just too awful. It's too evil. It's too much. But of course, scripture tells us that nothing is too much for God. And so that's what Deb told her. She said, in the same way Jesus loves little Hannah, he loves Karen, regardless of what she had done. I'm not sure in that moment when the pain was still so raw and fresh and new, I don't know if I could have done that. And it's a powerful reminder to all of us that no matter what we've done, if we ask for forgiveness, it's there. Deb shared some scriptures with Karen that showed her how to receive that forgiveness. And she asked Karen if she wanted to get that kind of forgiveness from Jesus. Karen said she did. We could argue and debate whether it was just a jailhouse conversion, but maybe that's between Karen and God. Days and weeks passed as Deb and Al and the children tried to heal from this awful, awful ordeal of Hannah's death and everything that went along with it. Deb continued to visit Karen every few weeks, and her family still didn't understand why. Once Karen was transferred from the local jail to prison, the visits were a lot different. Now Karen was brought in for her visit in belly cuffs and ankle chains. Visits were conducted on either side of a plexiglass barrier through a telephone handset. On one visit, Karen told Deb that prosecutors in her case were seeking the death penalty. I'm not sure how you respond to that when someone gives you that kind of news. Deb asked Karen if she'd heard from her parents, and Karen said no. No one was in contact with her. No one but Deb. Then suddenly she said she had something very important she wanted to ask Deb. So she leaned in close to the glass and asked if Deb and Al would take legal guardianship of her baby when it was born. Once again, Deb was in shock and didn't know what to think. They had taken in little Allie, Karen's baby who was born addicted to cocaine that is what started off our story. Then that led to taking in most of Allie's siblings, including Hannah. And now Karen wanted her to take in this unborn child. Deborah took a few days to just process this huge request before she could even feel like she could bring it up to Al and talk about it with him. 
Immediately, they both agreed that guardianship was not a good idea. But adoption? That was another story. That would give them full legal rights over this child. And that would give them a security knowing that no one could take him or her away to be placed in an unsafe situation like Hannah had been. This yes wasn't an easy one, but it was still a yes. Deb got permission to be present when this baby was born, and it reminded her that only two short years earlier, she'd been at that same hospital to pick up Allie, Hannah's baby sister, to be their foster child. And this time, she was going to be picking up another little girl. Even though Karen had agreed to the adoption, for some inconceivable reason, the Division of Family Services had decided to contest it, and they were going to fight for custody. This tiny little girl's fate would rest in the hands of a judge at a hearing the very next day. After he questioned both parties and noted that he was aware of Deb and Al's reputation as excellent foster parents, he granted them temporary custody of the child named Courtney Faith, and that would allow them to pursue their adoption of her. The baby went home with Deb that day, and she couldn't help but wonder, what would Hannah think? It wasn't long before Al's company transferred him out of state, which was really hard on the Mork teenagers. But it made some sense to get Courtney away from where her birth mother was so notorious. Karen pled guilty to killing Hannah and was given a life sentence in prison. Deb was so thankful that this new daughter of hers would never have to be told that her birth mother had been executed. Courtney was raised knowing she was adopted, but of course, some of the details of her birth family would have to remain a secret until she was old enough to understand it all. When Courtney was in kindergarten, they moved back to where they had come from in Wyoming. Eventually, Courtney was recognized by one of her biological sisters at a restaurant, and she approached her and told her who she was. Courtney was so upset. She was still so young. Deb and Al managed the situation as best they could, not wanting to give her the full story of her background quite yet. But when she was 13, Courtney ran into two other of her biological siblings. She had a lot of questions for Al and Deb. She wanted to know how many biological siblings she had. What were their names? Where did they live? When she was told that Hannah was dead, of course, she wanted to know what happened to her. Can you even imagine having that conversation with a 13-year-old? Courtney wanted to know about the woman who had given birth to her and why she had hurt her sister. It was so much for a young girl to absorb, and Deb wisely held back some of the most gut-wrenching details for another day. But she reassured Courtney of how very much she was loved and how her biological mother was a different person now than she had been back then. Courtney decided she wanted to go to the prison with Deb to meet Karen. She wanted to meet her siblings and her grandparents, too. But she told Deb, you're my mom. Her visit with Karen went well, and so did the ones with her siblings and grandparents. It was a start. As Courtney got older and learned more of the details of Karen's past, she quite understandably became withdrawn. Her family's secrets were an awful lot to wade through. She became rebellious and lost interest in school and sports. And she lost interest in her spiritual life, too. Then, when Courtney was 15, she became pregnant. She decided she was going to raise the baby herself, which, of course, 
as any of us experienced parents know, meant she was going to need a lot of support from Deb and Al. When she went into labor, the three of them returned to the hospital where Karen had delivered Allie, addicted to drugs, and Deb and Al became her foster parents. It's where Deb picked up Courtney as a newborn. And now they were there with Courtney as she delivered her daughter, Mary. Ladies, those of you who have had kiddos, you remember how much labor hurts. But in the end, we're rewarded with this new precious life. And I think in the same way, our pain in our daily lives gives us the reward of growing closer to God, if we'll allow it. This week, I want us to look at James chapter 1, verses 2 through 5, and I'm reading from the New International Version. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Everyone in this story needed a lot of wisdom to get through the situations that we've talked about. And you know what? I think each one of us does too. Deb certainly needed a lot of wisdom to deal with everything that had happened with Karen and her children, one of which became Deb's own. God was so gracious to give her the wisdom and guidance from the Holy Spirit, but it wouldn't have mattered if Deb hadn't listened and obeyed. She didn't want to visit Karen in prison, but God wanted her to, and so she obeyed. And that changed Karen's life forever. And it also changed Deb's. So my challenge for all of us this week, our practical action step, is just to really spend time not just talking to God, but listening. And once we really feel that tug, that we know an area where he's asking us to step out and serve, that we don't just hear the word, but we do it as well. We step out in obedience. And once you do that, send me a message. I would love to hear what you've done and how it has really impacted your life or your families or your communities. If you liked this episode, be sure you check out some of our earlier ones. I've been able to interview so many amazing guests, and they've given me fantastic information that you don't want to miss. And you can be a person of impact just by supporting this podcast. You can share the episode, you can subscribe, and you can give me a five-star rating with a nice review on Apple Podcasts. The Unlovely Truth is written and produced by me, Lori Morrison. Music is by Neil Cortex, and the artwork by Shelby Highland. See you all next time. Thank you for listening to this episode that is part of the Spark Media Network that can now be heard on the Edify app. 